everyone. This is your host, Sarah Barnes, and you're listening to the Top Artist Podcast. I'll just come out and say it. The thought of getting stung by a bee frightens me. If I see them buzzing in my path, I go out of my way to avoid them. I'm sure I'm not alone. But I also know how vital bees are to the health of our environment. So really, we should be embracing bees and celebrating these important pollinators. That's why it was so interesting to talk to my next guest, artist Ava Roth. As a Toronto-based encaustic painter, embroiderer, and mixed-media artist, she has, in recent years, entered into an interspecies collaboration with her local honeybees. As you'll hear, her desire to do so came from a curiosity to know more about the wax she was using in her work, going to the source of it, if you will. This led to her ongoing bee colony collaborations, in which she creates pieces on high frames using embroidery stitches, tree leaves, beading, and she then places them into honeybee hives where thousands of bees then embed the work in calm. Hearing Ava talk about the process, including the trials and errors, was fascinating, and getting a behind-the-scenes look at all that goes into her work was a lesson for me on the intricacies of bees, because Ava has learned a lot throughout this collaboration. As you listen, I hope it offers a new appreciation for you, too. These buzzy collaborators are the result of years and years of creative exploration. As we've discovered throughout our interviews on Top Artist, the path for an artist is often non-linear. Ava has no formal art training, meaning she didn't go to an art school. So let's begin with a look into why her desire to make weird kind of things made her feel like it wasn't the right place for her, but it has given her great insight with some inspiring takeaways, especially if you feel like your creative endeavors fall outside the realm of the conventional. I've spent my whole life making things like as a young, young person, I was always making, um, but I didn't think that there was a universe in which I could make the things that I really wanted. And I, I didn't associate um, art with such a breadth of different kinds of makings. And I don't know if that's something that's changed in the last, I mean, I'm 50 now, so I don't know if that's something that's changed since I was a young person. Like there's so much more, I think also with social media and whatever, there's so much more exposure to craft and to people who are making things all around the world with all different materials. I understood art to be something kind of formal and I wasn't interested in learning classical painting and I didn't see a a path for myself forward, forward as an artist. Um, because I was interested in weird kind of things, weird making weird things with weird material that I didn't see reflected back to me. So I didn't go to art school, even though I wanted to, because I didn't find I didn't find a program like a, again, I just didn't find a path where that would make sense for me. Um, so I found my own way to it. If you're an artist, it might feel like you have to know what you're going to say or what you're going to make even before you begin. This idea that you have to have it all figured out is totally daunting and can stop some of us from even starting in the first place. But Ava has realized that not knowing, having that beginner's mindset is an asset. And in my experience, the doing of it is the thing that allows you to find your path. It's it's not that you have this like flash of inspiration and you have all the answers and then you're just executing it. 
the journey is literally a journey of finding what it is that you want to say. And in the best case scenario, this kind of positive feedback loop happens where along the way you're gathering information, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing, you're making, you're gathering information and it starts to fold back in on itself. Even if you've been making work for many years as Ava has, it's important to have that sense of wonder about what you're doing, to keep engaged and to push your work forward. I find that now that I sort of like have a very clear sense of what it is that I'm doing, at least most days, not all the time, it seems a little ephemeral so I can lose it. I can just be like, well, what is it that I'm doing again? But for the most part, my practice is sort of solidified enough that I know what I'm doing, what I'm reaching for, but I still have to continually go back to that place of not knowing or else I just feel like I'm going to be kind of in the in a production mode or something, right? Like I'm just going to be pumping out more of what I've been doing and that doesn't have any interest for me at all. So I think that as an artist, like speaking to other friends who, who are artists also, like the challenge is actually to stay in that place of not knowing, like even when you figure out what you're doing to pull yourself back into a place where you're not actually sure like that, because that's a place of genuine exploration. That the thing that's hard about that is that that place of not knowing what you're doing is, um, it's not a happy place. It's a place of, of failure and struggle. Um, but that's the place that generates um, real exploration and, and real art, I think. I'm curious, when you say when you were younger, you wanted to make weird stuff, what kind of weird stuff did you want to make? I mean, I don't know that it was so weird as much as it was everything. Like I wanted, I and I still feel that way. Like I want to make everything and everything satisfies the same artistic or creative urge to me. Like I'm a big bread maker and I like to weave and I like to embroider and I like to I mean, I don't know. I, I remember when somebody offered me a job as an apprentice in a wig shop and I almost took it. Like it just oh, seems like, cool. yeah, like any, it doesn't matter. I sort of feel like whatever I can get my hands on if like I use natural materials in my work, but if for some reason those were completely unavailable to me, I would just use completely other materials. And so um, I've been interested in book binding and in ceramics and there's pretty much nothing that doesn't interest. I'd like to make light fixtures and carpets and I don't know, anything basically. Having all of these varied interests made her feel like she wasn't an artist because it went against her idea of what an artist should be. I had this image as a young person, I had this image as an artist, as somebody who was like very serious and they knew what they were gonna do and they were sort of touched by God or something and they were gonna learn oil painting and, and I would go to museums and I have an average interest in that kind of art. I mean, in classical art, I'm interested in it for sure, but that wasn't the stuff that really sort of set me on fire. Mm -hmm. I remember like being exposed to like outsider art and like I just people who were doing more kind of unconventional things. And that's the stuff that would, that would really inspire me. And I didn't know how to, how to get from where I was to confidently incorporating that into a cohesive practice for myself. Yeah, because you have so many interests. How did you find, you know, picking maybe a few and then using them in creating some sort of body of work? Do you find that overwhelming? Yeah, I mean, I do find it overwhelming. And there's something like, I don't want to say that what I do is arbitrary, 
Um, it makes a lot of sense, but there is some element of arbitrariness to it. I do think that like one of the things that I've learned about being an artist is that it's a practice. Um, what it really is, is putting in the hours. Like, I don't know, what, what was that book, 10,000 Hours or whatever that, that thing is. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, you put in like 10,000 hours, yeah. Right. And I couldn't, like, I, I just can't express how true, like how ultimately true that feels for me. It was, it's just the doing. I just go into my studio every single day, like religiously, I close the door and I shut everything out and I spend all of the hours doing. If you have a business, you need a website. So what's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag and drop page design. And they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com slash free, promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. All of the hours doing is what ultimately led Ava to her honeybee collaborations as she draws a line to how one thing led to another led to another. 20 years ago, I had a little art studio set up and there were all these different stations. There was an embroidery station and a painting station and a dry station and a wet station and, a, and everything felt really unconnected. And that was in a stage where I really did feel a little bit like I would never be able to understand what I was doing in a comprehensive or cohesive way, in a unified way. Mm -hmm. But then I just kept working. I would kept going from embroidery to painting and eventually painting d turned into beeswax. Like I discovered encaustic. So my painting station turned into an encaustic station and then other things sort of fell by the wayside. And I was focusing mostly on thread work and, and encaustic. And that, you know, five years passed like that. And then one day I was like, the penny dropped and I was like, okay, well, what if I put some thread in the encaustic? And then what if I do this? And But that's a lot of time passing before those connections are really made. And um, and then what if I don't take the beeswax out of the hive? What if I put the art into the hive? Like it's just this process of putting in all of the time when, again, like it's all of the time that you don't exactly have the answers and you don't exactly know what you're doing. Um, there's some intuition involved, but mostly it's just ours. Ava has a deep love of encaustic painting because she feels free to experiment with the medium. Unlike oil painting, for instance, which has a very long history of how to achieve technical success. But it still felt like something was missing. I was working as an encaustic painter for a long time and the bees felt very separate from me. I was buying wax. I was buying beeswax from a, from a local woman who sells it for artists, but it felt like very alienated from the means of production. I was surrounded by wax and really appreciating it, but I didn't know that much about bees. And so it was a process really of, of just starting to get curious about where this thing that, where this material that I was so steeped in was coming from. And, um, 
And then, you know, inevitably, when you learn about bees today, you learn about the plight of bees, you learn about colony Mm -hmm. collapse disorder and the relationship between bees and climate change um, and how, how critical they are to the environment. And the more I learned, the more that information uh, influenced my work. And I was trying to find a way to continually sort of like bridge the gap between my information, my, my caring about the environment. I mean, a lot of the themes of my work are environmental. Um, and so there was this logical connection that I was sort of seeking to to become more intimate with the medium in all kinds of ways. And there was a time maybe six years ago or something, when I, five years ago, when I wondered what it would be like if I put a piece of artwork in a beehive. Um, and so I, I developed a relationship with a beekeeper, um, a wonderful master beekeeper named Miley Norden, who I really could not do this project, any aspect of the bee collaboration without her work. She's been the guiding force behind it. Once Ava got in touch with Miley, it started a more formal education into learning about bees. So I started to sort of apprentice with her. I took a bunch of online courses and a, and a course through the Toronto Botanical Gardens near where I live. Um, and then eventually I got a beehive in my backyard. Then came the experimentation, where she put some pieces of embroidery into Langstrop hives, a type of beehive used throughout the world, without really knowing what would come out. The results were not what she expected. It was just a hot mess. Like the bees were like secreting pollen all over it and it was dripping in honey and they were chewing up the thread. I was really careful to only put, you know, safe organic materials inside of the hive. But in terms of pulling anything interesting out, I mean, it was all interesting to me, but it wasn't beautiful. (laughs) Um, And then I started to get a little bit more strategic about thinking about, okay, well, how can I maybe create some kind of collaboration that's going to have a result that's a little bit more thought through than just sort of shoving in a a piece of um, linen with some thread on it. Yeah. So the process that you use now, can you kind of give us a high level overview of what that looks like exactly? And how did it differ from your first forays into working with just putting artwork in the hive and seeing what comes out? Yeah, I mean it's it is still a continually evolving process. I mean the the season in Toronto is in Ontario is quite short um, because bees really only only are active and produce honey in the in the warm uh, summer months. So that's a, it's a relatively short time that I can be engaged with this part of what I do. I started to understand what it is that I was um, that I was hoping for a little bit more, like. Uh, one of the things that I decided early on was that I wasn't going to try to alter the the environment of the hive in any kind of way. So I know that there are some artists who create artificial chambers and they sort of pump bees, like thousands and thousands of bees into an artificial chamber and sort of in, in some ways in a top-down kind of directive force them to create comb um, on a structure that they've put inside the chamber. Because bees will theoretically at least bees will lay comb wherever there's some beeswax or scent so it theoretically i could put you know like beeswax on a water bottle and stick it in a beehive and the bees will cover that in comb i didn't want to take the bees out of the hive and i didn't want to um do anything inside of the space of the hive that would alter what they were already doing if you're having trouble picturing a beehive at this moment here's one way to think about it like a filing cabinet. 
it's essentially a box and there are slats and those slats, uh, which represent the files, um, can be pulled out of the hive and that's where the bees deposit their honey, their comb and then honey. So beekeepers pull out those files and they take out the honey and then they put the files back in. Um, there's a very specific amount of um, space between each of the files and uh, uh, a beehive is a highly organized place. Um, and I didn't want to disrupt that place in any kind of way. I didn't want to put a different kind of shape, like a three-dimensional shape inside or force them to do anything other than what they were already doing inside of the hive. Once Alva decided not to alter the shape that would go inside of the hive, a lot of things became clear, although were still really challenging. It was up to me to sort of think about working within one of those files, essentially. That's the only choice that I had. If I wasn't going to you know, change the whole organization within, I had to work within it. And so really the only option is to pull out one of those files and to create a piece of art inside of that. Oh, and also I should mention that that didn't give me a lot of width either because the the frames are stacked in very tightly. If you don't stack the frames in very tightly, like all of the folders in tightly, I mean, the bees will make something called bridge comb, which is instead of building the comb along the length of the whole frame, they'll create comb from side to side, horizontally connecting everything, which makes it just a mess. And so there was not a lot of dimensionality that I could work with either. And obviously my materials were kind of limited because I didn't want to put in anything toxic or harmful to them. And they also eat through, they chew through a lot of materials. They'll chew through paper and um, and thread. I sort of took the responsibility onto myself to to do all of the problem solving, like, and thought about it really as like, a, a, and I do think about it as a real collaboration where I'm sort of understanding what it is that they can give to the project and understanding what it is that I can give to the project and trying to find some kind of meeting place. With those stipulations, there is little that has changed in the overall concept of the project. One of the few changes is that Ava began making her own custom frames that are the same dimensions of frames that go in the Langstrop hive. I started working with somebody, a wood a woodworker friend of mine, whose name is Bear Noel Quintos, and he does beautiful work. And he made some out of local maple and pine and ash. And that really elevated, I think, the results. Um, and every year the project is evolving in little ways. Originally, I had worked for the first few years inside of embroidery hoops. I really liked that because I've really always had this deep love and care for the history of crafts and women's work. And that's sort of like the iconic emblematic sign of, of women's you know, work, uh, crafts is, is that embroidery hoop. And so I liked the nod to that. And it fits in well with the bee project because um, the majority of bees in a hive are female. So I really like the all-female aspect of the project. And so I stayed within the embroidery hoop. I needed something to create a boundary between the bees' work and my work. So my work was inside of the embroidery hoop and the bees had all the space around the embroidery hoop to build their comb. And then recently I, I let go of the embroidery hoop and I've started putting other shapes inside. And, uh, and that's also been really fun. So when you put like the embroidery hoop in, how do the bees know not to work inside that hoop? That's a really good question. That took me, again, that's part of the evolution of the project. It's just taking me a long time. Um, like I said, I mean, theoretically, bees will build comb wherever there's some there's some wax already. And so originally, I thought it would be super simple. I would just put down some beeswax where I wanted them to build 
comb and not in other areas. And that didn't work at all. <laughs> they just did whatever they wanted. Um, and so um, I had to just create uh, some incentive and some disincentive. So at this point, I, I laid down some of the comb from their own hive where I want them to build the wax. And I also cover the areas where I don't want them to build wax. And so there's a, a, it's like incentivizing and disincentivizing. How often do they go in these places where you don't want them to go? I'd say about uh, 60, 70% of the time. Wow. <laughs> but sometimes that, that doesn't always lead to a failure. I mean, right. uh, like from, from my perspective, I'm calling it a failure, right? Like, but sometimes it does. Sometimes for sure, there are many times when I can't use a piece. Um, but there are many times where something happens that I hadn't anticipated and it's really cool. You know, sometimes they'll eat through the edge, they'll like slip under the cover and they'll eat through the edge of a piece. And some people who are buying these, um, these pieces don't like that. They want something that's more pristine, but I love it. And some people are interested in those kind of natural imperfections that happen, or sometimes they'll deposit some, there'll be some residue of pollen or something on a piece or and also comb isn't so uniform and perfect. In some pieces you pull, I pull them out and they're absolutely perfect. It's like a dream. And, and other times I'll pull something out and it's patchy. It's kind of discolored. There's some, you know, dead bees or sticks stuck inside. The colors vary. There's a lot of variables. Um, and then the other thing that Miley and I have to consider is the timing of it. If you leave a piece in for too long, they'll deposit honey. I have a few pieces that are covered with honey because I didn't get them out in time and uh, I can't use them. So the timing has to be just right also. Is it possible that like once you pull something out and maybe it's not exactly what you were hoping for, that you ever go back and, you know, scrape off the honey or something like that? I do. I do it almost every almost every one of those those pieces that doesn't work for my purposes work, um, is repurposed. Is there one piece in particular, I'm just curious, that you like absolutely love, it really stands out to you as like a breakthrough piece or something where you just felt like this is this is taking me in the direction I want to go? Yeah, there are two pieces that really stand out. One of them is with um, a magnolia leaf and a bunch of French knots. I did like maybe 400 or 500 French knots, maybe more, I don't even, 800 French knots um, on on a piece of Japanese paper with underneath the magnolia leaf and um, and put that in a hive. And, and it's a very simple piece, but for me, it's exactly sort of what I had always dreamed of achieving with the project because I kind of think about it as, what I'd like to what I'd like to be doing in the best case scenario is a real collaboration where the bees are offering their work and I'm offering mine. And in that sense, it's like like stitch for honeycomb cell is the way that I'm kind of thinking about it. There's some sort of correlation between what we're doing. There's a lot of time and effort, but just time put in on the bees part. Um, and this piece took a lot of time for me. And there was something about the relationship between what we were each doing that seemed like a fair exchange, like an equal exchange, I should say. And so I really like that. That's, that's my intention for the project is that we're meeting at this place in between what the bees can offer and what I can offer. We can find this sort of narrow edge and meet there. 
that piece, I don't know that it's the most spectacular one at all, but it, it sort of, um, it was deeply satisfying for me to understand that that's what I'm reaching for. And then the other one is, is the last piece that I did last summer, um, which is the first time that I had really done something in a, in a round shape outside of an embroidery hoop. And I don't think it's that it's the best piece that I've done. It's just, it's just a little bit, um, exciting for me because that's the direction I want to go in next season. I want to experiment with new shapes and um, new kinds of frames that I'm working within. Uh, and this is a very different one. It's sort of a circle within the circle. So the bees are not just relegated in this piece to the outer edge. They have the outer edge and then they have an inner piece of the frame as well to build their comb on. So there's a lot more interaction and I'm, I'm hoping to do more of that this coming season. How long is the season? It's not something I thought about before a conversation. It's like you have, you probably do a lot of planning before to make, to maximize the time that you will have with the bees. And then once the it's in season, it's kind of go time for you. Yeah. Although I'm not so great at, at that kind of organizing. So go time is usually, um, all of the planning time. Also. <laughs> I mean, no, that's, I'm overstating it. It's not all of the planning time, but I do a lot of troubleshooting and thinking like mostly I've discovered that I can't do all of the planning ahead of time and then have it go seamlessly. I have to be available to do a lot of the work and troubleshooting during that, that go time season. And the season really varies because it really depends on, um, you know, like the weather in Toronto is, is really unpredictable. And so sometimes the summer can be very long and sometimes it can be comparatively short. Um, and so the bees produce honey very robustly when there's a lot of pollen and that's not always predictable, but let's say roughly speaking, you know, May, June, July, August, September with either end of that, maybe not as robust. Gotcha. Um, and so, and so I do do some planning in the off season, but one of the things that I like about this project is that it's really enabled me to actually work seasonally. And so most of the time in the season when the bees are off their work season, I'm working on entirely other things. I do a lot of encaustic painting still, and a lot of working with, um, other materials still, and so the bee collaboration is just a, a facet of what I do. And I really like the idea of having that, that like take up six months of the season. And then I have six months of the season roughly to um, experiment with other things. When you are working in this off season, does any of that work? I'm sure it informs the collaboration with the bees as well. Yeah, Absolutely. At this point, everything folds back in on on itself in in ways that are really exciting, and and that's what I was saying earlier. I think it takes a lifetime of working at something before those connections between all of the different things you're doing really make sense. Um, but yeah, at this point, absolutely, um, I'm working with new materials right now, and I don't know exactly how that will um, how that will fold into the B collaboration, but I'm confident that it will in some way. As I wrapped up our time with Ava, I asked her the question we've been asking every artist we've interviewed for the second season of Top Artist. What impact does she hope her art would have? I think at some level my work feels very selfish to me because I spend all of my time following my own little trail of breadcrumbs forward, I guess, into um, sort of trying to process my experience of the world. Um, through what I'm making and also backwards into my childhood. Um, 
so there's, I spend all of my time alone. It wrapped up sort of in my own thoughts, tracking down my thoughts, my own vision, my own memories, my own hopes. Um, it's a, it's a pretty isolated and selfish endeavor at some level, but on another level, I take the responsibility of adding some value or some positivity to the world very seriously. And my work, I think, is essentially about relationships. It's essentially about intimacy. And specifically, it's about our human relationship to the natural environment. But my process requires me to have an enormous amount of, uh, of patience and sort of tenderness and love um, in the way that I look at things and appreciate things. I hope that that's communicated somehow in my work. And if there's even just one tiny little message that's communicated through the work, I think it would be something about that. I think it would be something about the way that we, that I hope that we can all look at each other and treat each other with just adding a little bit of tenderness, a little bit of love, and also a little bit of wonder to how we move through, through our environment. That's it for our chat with Ava Roth. A huge thanks to Ava for speaking with us and sharing about her fascinating collaboration with bees and the impact it's making on the way we see the world. If you'd like to follow her online, the best place to find her is on Instagram, where she's at Ava Roth Art. We'll be back in two weeks when my co-host Sam Pierce will be here talking with another amazing creative who is making an impact with their work. If you like what you hear, tell a friend or two and leave us a review. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, where we're at Top Artist Podcast. And subscribe to our newsletter by visiting podcast.mymodernmet.com. In the meantime, you can get your fix of art and culture at mymodernmet.com. If you're a member, you'll get an ad-free reading experience and other great perks while helping to support the site. Just click the membership link at the top of the screen.